So have you guys seen those, those online quizzes that pop up on your Facebook feed as you're scrolling along? You know, the ones where you answer 10 or 12 questions and then they tell you, you know, what famous person you're most like or what state you should be living in or what your personality is like. Or you guys have seen those. Well, I have one that we're going to take together today that's going to tell you whether you're cynical or not. Okay, and you answer yes or no to these seven questions, and we're going to decide whether you're a cynic. So question number one, do you believe that for every action there is an equal and opposite criticism? <laughs> number two, do you believe that change is inevitable except from vending machines? Number three, do you believe no one is listening until you make a mistake? Number four is two wrongs are only the beginning. Number five, a clear conscience is usually a sign of a bad memory. Number six, bills travel through the mail at twice the speed of checks. And the final one, number seven, do you believe that 42.7% of all statistics are made up on the spot? <laughs> right, so <laughs> that's Bill. He got seven out of seven. <laughs> right. So if you answered yes to most of those questions, like our dear brother Bill, you may be a cynic. <laughs> but you wouldn't be alone because, you know, cynicism has increasingly become the dominant spirit of our age, hasn't it? Like when we look at the, the greed and corruption in politics and we're not surprised anymore. When we look at, the, at how cruel and, and crude and clueless people can be and it doesn't shock us anymore. When we look at the, the sad state of the family and the rise in crime and in violence, we just kind of put another check mark in our what else would you expect list until eventually we let it take a hold of our hearts and we begin to equate cynicism with being a realist, being realistic. So we have this idea, this thought that being cynical is what comes from what knows what's really going on in the world. Because it feels real. It feels authentic. And it keeps us from being disappointed, doesn't it? Keeps us from being disappointed with people and with life. And that's kind of the idea that we're going to focus on in this week's lectionary text from the Gospel of John. Because in this week's passage, we meet a man named Nathaniel. A man who likely has tasted disappointment in his life. And he's allowed it to make him cynical. But then... In a completely unexpected encounter, Nathaniel comes face to face with Jesus Christ. And because of that, his life changes forever. And he gains a greater insight than he had ever dreamed. So we're going to be looking together in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 43. So hear now the words of the true and living God. John writes, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and he told him, We found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael, can anything, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip said. As they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me, Nathaniel asked. Well, Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. 
Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus said, do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than this. And then he said, I tell you the truth. You will see all heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the son of man. The one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Amen. So this passage starts off with Christ's call to Philip. And we aren't really given very many details about the call, except that John just tells us that Philip responded in faith and he followed. And then look at what he does. He went and found Nathaniel and he told him, this is it. We found the one, the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. So again, the gospel is kind of short on details, but you know, if you look at this passage, we can infer a couple of things here. And one of them is that Philip knew Nathaniel well enough to know his interest in the coming of Messiah. And number two, Philip was enthusiastic enough about sharing his encounter with Jesus face-to-face, person-to-person, in the context of a relationship just like we should be doing. The relationship like we talked about in Sunday school class this morning of one thirsty soul telling another where they can find that living water. Except Nathaniel, who didn't realize how thirsty he was just yet, comes back with a cynical reply. A reply to his embarrassment that will be repeated as long as the scriptures are preached. And he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? You got to just, you know, kind of picture his reaction. Here comes Philip with this great news. He said, I've met the Messiah. But Nathaniel goes, oh, wait a minute. Maybe that news is too good. Too good to be true. Too simple to be possible. Where's the catch? Where's the other shoe to drop, as we say back in Pennsylvania? Right, till Philip says, oh, and by the way, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel can't believe what he's hearing, because you see, in the popular culture of the day, nothing much good comes from Nazareth. It was a, an obscure village tucked away in the hills of Galilee. I mean, we, we all know that type of place, right? Every state and county has a place like Nazareth. A place so remote that nothing ever happens there. Nobody important ever seems to come from there. It's like when you tell people that you live in Zephyr Hills, right? That's why, that's why when people ask me that inevitable question, well, where's that? I, I always just say, oh, it's, it's just outside the United States. <laughs> so if you can picture that, that's Nazareth. And that's why it seemed highly unlikely that the Messiah would come from a place like that, because come on. I mean, if you're looking for the one, if you're looking for the the great coming king, if you're looking for the one the prophets wrote about, you'd expect him to come from someplace important, right? Like Jerusalem. But see, you and I already know that's not God's way, is it? Because right from the beginning, he's picked the little guy, the forgotten one. That's why the Lord says of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, he says, you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other nations. For you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, 
It was simply that the Lord loves you. Simply that he loves you. And in the New Testament, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. You see, at every point along the way, God upends our human prejudices. He overthrows our preconceptions. He doesn't play to our expectations. What he always says in the words of Philip, come and see. Come and see. You know, I mentioned Sunday school class. I, you know, I always like to, to tell the folks there in Sunday school class or in Bible study that for me, one of the great things about our Christian faith is that you don't have to be afraid to look behind the curtain. You don't have to be timid about digging beneath the surface and asking questions, tough questions. Because unlike other world religions, Christianity is not merely based on blind faith. Because blind faith is faith without evidence, and that would be superstition. But the Bible never calls us to that. And as, as pastors and teachers, we don't ask the inquirer to accept the truth claims of Christianity just on our say-so. Right? No, instead we say in the words of Psalm 34, taste and see. In other words, for yourself, taste and see that the Lord is good. All the joys of those who take refuge in him. Right? And yes, there's always going to be that step of faith for the Christian, but that step doesn't require a person to leave their brains at the church door. But it does require honesty. Honesty on all sides. You know, the great apologist Francis Schaeffer once said that honest questions deserve honest answers, but the key phrase there is honest. And he said that because in many cases that doesn't happen with the doubter or the skeptic, does it? But we have to be sensitive to the fact, too, that those same people, those same people bring their own heart questions with them. And we can never forget that just like Nathaniel, behind every cynical question is a questioner, one whose heart may be feeling more than they actually ask. Because, you see, verbally, they may ask those really hard questions, those really hard questions to answer, like, doesn't the Bible contradict itself? Or they might make statements like, hasn't science proven that Miracles don't really happen. But you see, underneath those hard questions, many are really asking heart questions. Like, what makes my life significant? Or maybe like, how can I become whole when I feel so empty? How can I become clean when I feel so dirty? How can I have faith when I'm filled with so much doubt? And maybe most pressing at all, how can I possibly consider the truth claims of the scriptures? Because if I admit they may be credible, it may mean I'd have to admit that I've been wrong about the way I've been living. Or it may mean I have to change my lifestyle or the things that I care about. And so they put up this cynical exterior by posing outwardly hard questions that become the smoke and mirrors that they need to disguise their questioning hearts on the inside. And people do it because, truth be told, just like Nathaniel, we don't always really want an answer to our questions, do we? 
That's why Philip didn't bother to give one. He simply said to Nathaniel, come and see. Come and see the Christ and encounter him for yourself. He said, I can't guarantee that he'll give you the answers that you want, but I can promise you that he'll give you every answer that you need. And then, you know, just as abruptly as that story began, the scene kind of takes a change from a conversation between friends and goes straight to Nathaniel's encounter with Christ. Remember, we read as he approached, Jesus said, now here's a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus replied, I can see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth, you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. And it really, when you read it, it seems like a kind of a stilted conversation, doesn't it? It sounds kind of odd because when you read through that passage, you get the, the vague kind of sense that Christ is somehow complimenting Nathaniel. And then Nathaniel's response seems like it comes out of nowhere. So we're going to break this open and kind of figure out what's going on here. And to do that, this is where it helps to understand kind of the Hebraic roots of our faith and remember that even though the Apostle John is writing primarily to Gentiles like us, he was himself thoroughly Jewish. He quoted from the Old Testament. He explains Jewish customs. He writes from the perspective of a person who's steeped in the Jewish Torah. And so John tells us that when Jesus sees Nathaniel, he says two things to him. First, he, he calls Nathaniel a true Israelite. And then he told Nathaniel he'd seen him sitting under the fig tree. So what's going on here? Well, that true Israelite statement that Jesus makes works on a couple levels. On the surface, Jesus simply said, here's an honest man. But on another level, the statement was a play on words pointing back to the patriarch Jacob, later renamed Israel. So if you go back in Genesis and read his story, Jacob was the exact opposite of an honest person, wasn't he, before the name change? Remember, he cheated Esau out of his birthright. He conned Isaac out of the family blessing. He swindled Laban to get the best sheep. Even his name means trickster, trickster or deceiver or, or grappler. And that's exactly what he was until he grappled with God until he wrestled with God, wrestled all throughout the night until daybreak, at which point the Lord touched Jacob's hip, delivering a blow that disabled him and left him with a limp for the rest of his life. As a, as a permanent reminder of the struggle and as a catalyst for a changed heart. And you know, that can happen in our lives too. Because we all like to wrestle with God from time to time, don't we? We like to wrestle with God and with our own thoughts and, and feelings and our opinions about how he should run his universe and work out his plans. Until, like Jacob, God has to break us a little so he can rename us and make us new. New, first of all, in our love for him, but new in the affections of our hearts and in our attitudes toward God and the things God wants, even when they conflict with our preconceived ideas. And that's why Jesus says to Nathaniel today, yeah, you're, you're a real chip off the old block of Jacob. And you're going to learn the hard way, just like your ancestor did if you follow me. But you're also going to recognize the real truth when you see it. You're going to recognize the coming of the kingdom when you see it. And you're going to believe in it and in the new Israel. 
That's why Jesus brings up the fig tree. You see, in Hebrew culture, the fig tree was a place of rest and comfort. That's why the prophets of ancient Israel used the imagery of that fig tree to convey the picture of God's messianic kingdom. In Zechariah chapter 3, in describing how God would reclaim his people through his son, the prophet wrote, Soon I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And on that day, said the Lord of heaven's armies, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit with you peacefully under your own grapevine and fig tree. And the prophet Micah used that imagery in the same way in, in Micah 4, when he said the Messiah's kingdom would be a place where everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevine and fig tree, for there'll be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise. And it was because of this and and similar passages like that, that faithful Israelites would sit under fig trees as a, a place of prayer and of hope and, and symbolic expectation. You know, when you were said to be under the fig tree, you were in a place of reflection and, and study and meditation. A place where people could really express their heart of hearts to God. And, and in our text today, Jesus uses those two images of, of Jacob and of the fig tree to convey his understanding of Nathaniel. And Jesus was saying to him, I know your heart. I know you've been praying for the Messiah to come. I know you want God's kingdom to be restored. And you can tell from Nathaniel's reaction that wasn't really what he expected Jesus to say, was it? And probably it wouldn't be what we'd expect him to say either. Because of our more cynical nature, we probably would have expected some kind of sales pitch. Right? We would have expected Jesus to say, this is why you should follow me. Or expected him to say, this is what I can do for you. Or expected him to say, let me show you my qualifications. But instead, Jesus greeted Nathaniel by speaking directly to what was most on his heart. And you know, by doing that, Jesus got immediately past his cynicism and his smokescreen to encounter the core issue for Nathaniel. And so he reached right into his heart. Because Jesus didn't and still doesn't play games or beat around the bush when he speaks to us, does he? And Nathaniel responded to that directness in simple faith. And he said, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. And in that quick switch from cynicism to sincerity, it really indicates the depths to which Jesus touched him. Which is a great example of the kind of encounter that you and I can have with Jesus Christ too. Because Jesus gets past our defenses and he speaks to our longings. And he reminds you and me that we are created and designed with dignity. He reminds us that we've been given talents and abilities that can be used for his purpose. He reminds us that our daily labors have more significance than just the the weekend, week-out grind of earning a paycheck. And most importantly of all, he reminds us that our physical bodies and personal relationships are more than mere self-gratification because we as humans bear the imago Dei, the image of God. An image that even though we have marred it with our sin and our selfishness and our cynicism, he doesn't just throw us away, does he? No. He sends us his own dear son to redeem us and restore us in spite of the fact that we constantly reject him. Or more to the truth, never really look for him to begin with. And so Jesus makes the first move. He comes after us and he gets past our walls of defenses and touches us right where we need us the most. And he changes our hard heart so that we can acknowledge him. That's why God said through the prophet 
Ezekiel, he said, I'm bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. I'm doing it to protect my holy name on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. And when I reveal my holiness through you before their very eyes, says the sovereign Lord, then all the nations will know that I am the Lord. For I'll gather you from all the nations and bring you home to your land. And then I'll sprinkle you with clean water and you'll be clean. And your filth will be washed away and you'll no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart. Put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I'll put my spirit in you so you'll follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And you'll live. You'll live. And isn't that what we all really want? To live? To really have Jesus speak to us in a way that only he can. Just like he did with Nathaniel. With Nathaniel, when he makes that statement that was guaranteed to blow his mind. Right? Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I'd seen you under the fig tree? He's basically saying, you haven't seen nothing yet. Right? You'll see greater things than this. He said, I tell you the truth, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. You see, Jesus didn't reply to questions, but he answered him, didn't he? in a way that far exceeded his expectations. Because Christ didn't promise to restore just the the tiny geographic nation of Israel. He promised to open up heaven and show the inner workings of the universe and the eternal plan of salvation, not just for his chosen people, Israel, but for people from every tribe and tongue and race and nation around the globe. With himself as the center, as the living embodiment of God's promise to Jacob in Genesis 28, where God promised him through thy seed, which is Christ, through thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That Remember, that's when Jacob found that spot to lay down his head in the midst of the wilderness. And the Bible says as he slept, he dreamed of a stairway, a stairway that reached from earth to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down that stairway. But if you notice, when Jesus retold that story to Nathaniel, something was missing. It's a stairway that was missing. Because Jesus said the angels, those messengers of God, are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's Jesus himself. Because he's saying that he himself is that stairway to heaven. He's the ladder. He's the, the link between heaven and earth. And that ladder shows us the two natures of Christ, that he is both God and man in one person. And that's important because if Christ is going to be our true mediator, that true link between those two extremes, he has to be able to relate to both. And he has to be able to, for all time, and in one place, reconcile God's righteous judgment against the sins of humanity with his relentless love for us on the other side. And brothers and sisters, that only happens at Calvary. That only happens at the cross. And if you've never been there for yourself, I want to invite you in his name to come to that cross today. And you don't have to come down the aisle You don't have to raise your hand. In fact, you don't have to do anything on your own, but receive the love of the Father. But to feel the urging of the Holy Spirit and but to hear the voice of the shepherd, Jesus Christ, saying, come and see. Come and see. And he says, I tell you the truth, you'll see heaven open. You see the Son of Man who is the stairway between heaven and earth. It'll be a sight that'll move you to say in the words of Nathaniel, Lord, now I see. 
Now I see you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And even more, you're the king of my heart. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you that you did send your son to be not only the, the king of Israel, not only the king of the world, but Lord, the king of our individual hearts. And so I ask, Father, now that uh, for all your sheep that are hearing the voice of the shepherd, for all of those whose hearts are being moved by the spirit, that you would draw them, Lord, to yourself. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity just to to be here together, Lord, as a body of believers and to feel the movement of your spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would draw now all those that you are bringing to yourself, Lord, that your name may be glorified and your kingdom may be increased. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.